Amen. Good morning, church. It's great to see you. If you've got your Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 is where we will be this morning, uh, so we'd love it if you turn there. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you a couple of updates on some things. As Marley mentioned, uh, we'd love for you to join us next week. Uh, we've got a big Sunday, one service. Do not show up here at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock. You'll be an hour early or an hour late. Uh, we're going to gather at 10 a.m., uh, kids first and up in the service because we firmly believe um, that our children have gifts that we need, according to 1 Corinthians 12. Um, I don't have all the gifts, you don't have all the gifts, and the Holy Spirit didn't skip our children when he was giving out gifts either um, for those of them that know the Lord. And uh, we'd love for them to worship with us, to read scripture during the sermon and uh, all those things. Um, if you've got a child that wants to read, let me know. We'd love to get them up here and let them um, encourage us in the word and those kind of things. But um, we're going to gather at 10, and then uh, that night we're going to have a trunk or treat. And uh, we do these things because we want to be a church that breaks bread with one another and cares for one another and knows one another. Um, but this is a perfect event um, where your neighbors and friends and coworkers and those that um, maybe don't have a church home, we'd love for you to invite them. I just want you to know that this isn't just exclusive to, uh, to our members um, this is a great event for you to bring a friend and all those kind of things. So if you're interested or if the Lord puts it on your heart to ask somebody, we'd love for you to do that. So um, on a personal note, uh, we want to let you know that uh, my wife and I are having a child. Um, big update. It's exciting. Um, we are expecting uh, we're going to have a baby boy, Lord willing, in April and uh, wanted to let you know that before we uh, posted things and all that stuff, wanted to let our church family know about that. So we're excited. And uh, we don't want to make that just about us. Um, the Lord's been kind and uh, has blessed multiple couples in our church um, who are expecting uh, Stephen and Rachel Williams, Zeke and Katie Henderson, and others. So uh, we're just excited for what the Lord is doing. And uh, just on a personal note, um, we'll say it again next week as we do family dedication and stuff. Um, our prayer has been whether uh, I'll just say this. We were expecting a really, really hard road, um, and I don't want to make light of any of uh, our members and church family that are experiencing a hard road. Uh, we were fully expecting that, and uh, our prayer has been, you know, if we have the baby or not, if we lose the baby or not, if the baby comes to full term or not, um, that Christ will be enough for us. Um, that's our prayer. He's proven himself faithful, and um, we don't want to deify children. Um, because they are not God. They will not satisfy our souls. Um, those little things are um, born in sin. Uh, as parents, you know that. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to minimize it. We don't deify it, but we don't want to minimize it either. The children are an incredible gift from the Lord. Um, and we'll remind ourselves of that next week. Um, so we're humbled and grateful for the gift. And uh, if you'd continue to pray for us, um, we would greatly appreciate it. But that's the church update and personal update and those kind of things. Uh, let's read our passage this morning. Uh, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 16, and uh, we're looking at a um, pretty interesting parable this morning um, that is very explicit about life and death and eternity and all of those things. Um, so let's read it together, and then uh, we'll dive in. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read Luke chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 19. Um, and read through verse 31. It says this. This is the word of the Lord. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime, that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us, and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. 
so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, God, as we look at this text, and as you... Um, call to remembrance and just allow all of us to think about our lives, to think about eternity. Um, God, we're grateful um, that you tasted death for us. Um, Father, that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, you yourself partook of the same things, that through death you might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death might be subject to lifelong slavery. God, we're grateful for what you've done. We're grateful that for the believer, um, God, you've tasted death for us. Um, God, what grace. Um, That was my cross that you took. God, I was the cursed one. You were the innocent one. And God, we're grateful that you tasted death in our place. And I pray for those in here that do not see you as their substitute, God, in life and in death. Father, I pray that they would see you for who you are today. And for those of us that do, um, God, help us to to be faithful stewards of this message. Um, Teach us now as we talk about some some heavy things. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. I uh, have a lot of cousins. My uh, mom is one of eight children. Um, She's one of eight. She's towards the end of the line. She's second to last And uh, I lost my aunt, my mom's younger sister, the eighth, um, about 10 years ago to cancer. And I will never forget um, just that journey and those kind of things. My mom was able to walk with her. Um, A pastor from a local church here in town actually came and um, shared the gospel with her. And she put her faith in Jesus um, on her deathbed. And uh, we're incredibly grateful to God for that. And I'll never forget the funeral. Uh, My grandfather on my mom's side is uh, not a believer and... Um, one of the beauties of this season is he now lives with my parents and my mom's able to talk with him often and uh, he's not in good health and those things, but he has no comprehension for um, eternity and what happens after we die and those kind of things. And I'll never forget, we were, um, I forget the name of the place, we were um, at the funeral home on Witten, kind of towards 64, Reese Road, all those things. And uh, I walk in and um, I hear weeping the moment I walk in the door. And you know, most funeral homes, there's kind of the um, rectangle looking um, down front chairs, and then there's often this wing to the side of the front where the family can sit. And I just hear weeping coming from the front left over there um, the entire time that we're visiting and talking with people, and it's my grandfather. And um, I'll never forget that sound, just because he had no comprehension of where his daughter was, um, what the eternal state looks like, feels like, um, where he might spend his eternity, all of those things. And his only response was just to weep um, at the loss of his daughter. And I tell you that because um, I pray and hope and have been just really thinking about this week um, how much of this parable could have benefited him in that moment Um, to hear the comfort that we have in the gospel, to hear the warning that we have um, if we don't. Um, accept it and believe it and trust in it. And uh, so I'm really excited about this text. And I just want to, very much like attending a funeral, and I've had the privilege of walking with multiple families um, and being a part of the funeral process and those things, and I really do count it a privilege. Um, This morning's text is going to cause us to think about um, the same things that funerals cause us to think about. Um, Life, death, whether we know the Lord or not, what happens after we die, um, we're going to answer a lot of those questions. Now, this isn't an exhaustive parable that tells us everything we need to know about the afterlife and eternity and those things, um, but it does give us a lot that we can learn from and benefit from. So, um, to give you some context before we dive in, um, at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, um, it opens with Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. It says they were all drawing near to him, and the scribes and the Pharisees are already not enjoying this, not you know, they're trying to comprehend, okay, why do these sinners that we've essentially called outcasts, why are they hanging out with this man, this Jesus? And why does he welcome them? If he's claiming to be righteous, he's claiming to be holy, why does he interact with tax collectors and sinners? 
And then you move into chapter 16, and Jesus starts teaching his disciples. Chapter 16 literally opens with, he also said to his disciples. And he starts talking about um, these rich men and wealth and being faithful stewards and how wealth is... um, treated differently according to God and according to Jesus and how the scribes and the Pharisees uh, would teach it. Um, often the scribes and the Pharisees would, would show and teach that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. It was a sign of God's favor that you were doing things right. And Jesus taught the complete opposite. Not that wealth was inherently sinful or anything like that. That's not where the parable's going. That's not where I'm going. But he always taught that wealth uh, needed a warning. Because you and I, we can't serve, we can't equally serve God and money. We, we can't. We will serve one over the other. And Jesus always taught it with a warning that it nece- wasn't necessarily a sign of God's favor and blessing, that it needed a warning from us because we can't serve both masters. You and I cannot serve God and money. We can't have them both. Now, we can have God and be blessed with wealth, but you can only put one on the throne. And you'll serve one over the other. And oftentimes when money came up, Jesus starts giving warnings. And we need to heed those warnings as Americans in the top 1% of wealth in all the world. We need to heed those warnings. Only one person will be on the throne of your heart. And so many times money will compete with um, our affections, with our desires, all of those things. And if you look at verse 13 of Luke chapter 16, Jesus says it. No one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And in verse 14, Luke gives us some insight into the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus gives them a warning in verse 15. You're those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Those things that are exalted in praise of this world among the people of this world um, are the very things that will take us away from the Lord. If we worship them, if we make them our God, if we make idols out of them, all of those things. And Jesus just breaks out into a parable, and I want to kind of give a disclaimer Um, As we look at verse 19, um, commentators debate whether this is a parable or whether this is not a parable. Um, And the reason being is Jesus breaks out in this story. And what's so fascinating about this story is this is the only time that someone in a parable is given a name, which is why some, uh, you'll see the name Lazarus in here, which is why some commentators and theologians um, debate whether this is Jesus talking from reality or if he's just giving a story. Um, I lean towards the parable route, and I'll tell you why as we kind of walk through it, Um, but I want to kind of present both to you and let you um, ultimately do some research and decide for yourself as we walk through this. Um, But it's the only person in a parable that's given a name, but it's also the only time that someone is quoted um, in the afterlife, that we get quotes from someone who has died and who is currently dead. Um, So fascinating. Uh, Which one is it? I kind of showed my hand. I lean towards the fact that it's a parable, Um, but whether it's real or not is not the point. Um, There's principles in here that are the point that we need to look at and see for ourselves. So um, one of the things I want to mention as we walk through this is there's this stigma in Christian circles about um, talking about hell, about referencing hell um, as we talk to people. And I just want to kind of level that for a second. Um, Jesus had no issue talking about hell with people. He had no issue bringing it up. He had no issue using it to talk about um, the gospel. And um, I just want to make sure, you know, the, the person who mentions hell the most often is Jesus. As he's teaching, as he's sharing the gospel with people, as he's warning the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, He was the one who mentioned it the most. So um, this idea that, yeah, I just don't want to do that. And I get it. It comes from a good place where like, I don't want people, you know, just to to put their faith in Jesus because they don't want to go to hell and those kind of things. But I think we should talk about it. I think we should present it um, because it's half the gospel that you and I are deserving of God's wrath, that God's holy. He's righteous. Everything he does is perfect and good and right. And we are not. And we are rightfully deserving of God's eternal punishment. We are deserving of his wrath. And it's often the part of the gospel that we leave out. And I, as much as I love the truth that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, um, that is not the whole gospel. 
Is it theologically true? Yeah, you can argue that. But go to someone and don't tell them that God is holy and that they're in sin and they're deserving of God's just and right punishment and just start telling them that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life and you'll get the response that, oh good, because I love me too and I have a wonderful plan for my life and my plan is quicker and it helps me a little bit better than God's plan and God and I have different versions and definitions of the word wonderful when it comes to my life, um, so I'll just keep doing it my way right? That so often we can, and, 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 and it comes from a good place. Like I said, I'm not trying to preach at anybody. This is kind of a, a cultural Christian issue, um, but we've got to tell people the whole gospel, that there is a holy God who created all of us, and he is majestic and wonderful, and everything he does is perfect and good and right, and you and I fall short of his glory on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, <laughs> I would venture to say on a minute-to-minute basis that I have not loved God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength, which is his standard one time. I've never done it in my life. That all of my love, all of my affections are still tainted with a little bit of sin, with me trying to get my own glory, my own agenda, my own praise, my own everything. That you and I, we are in our sin, deserving of God's Punishment And the, the, the very holiness of God attests to the fact that there is a hell. And what I mean by that is if there is not an eternally holy God and the, the right and just and fair punishment for sin is eternal punishment, if there's not an eternally holy and magnificent God, then there's no need for a hell. But the very fact that there is one attests to the fact that there is a place of eternal punishment. Does that make sense? If there's no God who's eternally perfect and holy, then there's no need for a hell. We might as well eat and drink and be merry and go on with our lives, as Paul said, because our faith is futile. It's worthless. But the fact that in an eternally perfect, majestic, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-perfect God exists demands that there be a place of eternal punishment for those um, who sin against him. Does that make sense? So, I just want to kind of give those disclaimers as we look at it and as we talk about it. Um, Jesus had no issue talking about it, and um, we shouldn't have an issue either. Now, there is this idea that, hey, we want to be careful. We want to tell people the whole gospel so that there isn't this just, hey, I'd rather just save my butt and not really save my soul, if you know what that means. I'd rather just not go to hell and keep doing my own thing. Um, I would argue that those people that you know raise a hand and just, hey, yeah, got that taken care of, I'm gonna keep living my own life, um, truly don't love and have accepted Jesus as their savior. Does that make sense? Um, But fear is an adequate part of believing in Jesus. I, initially, when I put my faith in Jesus, it was because I heard my dad preach a message about hell, and I was afraid because I stood rightfully condemned for my sin. And just like in the hymn we sing, Amazing Grace, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. But the good news of the gospel is that I realized as I grew in my relationship with Jesus that it was so much more than just not going to hell. There was life, there was peace, there was joy being offered, there was righteousness and holiness found in Christ, and it was grace my fears relieved. God, as we preach the whole gospel, will teach people's hearts to fear in his grace, that we stand rightfully condemned. But it's that same grace that comes in and relieves the fear. When we, when we realize and believe that someone took that wrath, someone took that punishment in my place, and I get to know him and walk with him and serve him and be united with him, um, there's a joy in that. So I just want to make that clear. But let's look at the parable. Verse 19, he says this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, this is the first time I've ever used the word sumptuously um, in my life. But it's there, and he says this. I want you to see the contrast between the rich man and Lazarus, the poor man, as we'll see in just a second. But the rich man, he's clothed in purple and fine linen. Now this um, adjective, this kind of description of him um, needs a little bit of explaining, but purple dye was found in this specific kind of sea snail um, in the first century. So it was incredibly hard to get. It was incredibly rare. It was incredibly expensive. So the color purple was actually a sign of wealth. It was a sign of royalty. So this man is clothed in purple and fine linen, 
and he feasted sumptuously every day. And now that word um, sumptuously is also the word described in Luke chapter 15, uh, where the prodigal comes home and the father says, kill the fattened calf. Um, it's often this word that's used to describe a celebration. And what Jesus is saying here is what most of us, you know, would pull out all the stops and do on occasion, this man does every single day. This is how wealthy he is. This is how rich he is. This is the kind of meals that he's eating. He's doing this on a daily basis. So you've got this rich man, fine linen, incredible food. And in verse 20, it says this, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So notice the multiple play on words here, the comparison here. You've got Lazarus desiring to eat what the dogs would eat, scraps. And instead of that, he's having his sores being eaten by the dogs, which is a nasty thing to even picture and describe and write down in the first century. That this man who's desiring to eat what the dogs are eating is being eaten by the dogs. His wounds are. So you've got this rich man, you've got the poor man. You've got one covered in fine linen and you've got one covered in sores. One has a home and a gate. One has nothing and is laid at the gate. One is eating sumptuously and one is begging for scraps that dogs eat. One is viewed, according to the first century customs, as experiencing divine blessing through his wealth, and one is viewed as experiencing divine punishment with his sores. It was a common in the first century that if you had any kind of physical ailments, that it was almost divine punishment. One is perceived as the ultimate human, this rich man who had attained all of the, the pursuits that you would experience in this life on this earth, and one is perceived as less than human, that even the dogs are benefiting from him and eating off of him. You see the, the comparison that Jesus puts. It's insanely intentional. So much play on words here. And I want to stop here and say that riches are not automatically sinful, all right? The, the point of this, and we'll see, their end destinations has nothing to do with whether they had wealth or not. I want to be clear, there will be rich people in heaven and there will be poor people in hell. The deciding factor of these two people's destinies is not what they had in this life. But we cannot ignore the warning in this text, especially as Americans in 2022. With wealth always comes this warning of what's going to compete with, our, with the throne of our hearts. Riches do not determine where you end up but what you do with your riches is often a sign of who's on the throne of your heart. Do you use your wealth to serve yourself, to build your own kingdom, all of those things, or do you use it to, to further God's kingdom? That there's a warning here that we cannot ignore. We have to heed it. We cannot treasure God and treasure wealth equally. We will treasure one over the other. And to treasure something, to treasure anything over God is to not treasure him at all. So we need to heed that. But I want to be clear. I'm including myself in this. To have money does not ultimately determine where you end up. Does that make sense? But there's a warning here. There is level ground at the foot of the cross. James 1, um, a fascinating verse in, in, in uh, 9 and 10 of James chapter 1. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich boast in his humiliation. And what he's saying here is that at the foot of the cross, there is a level playing field. That the poor boast in the fact that they, uh, earthly riches can't get you any of God's merit or favor. They're exalted when they put their faith in Jesus that it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have, that the poor boast that in Christ they're exalted and the rich need to boast in the fact that no amount of money gets them any closer to God. That the poor are exalted and the rich are humbled, that at the foot of the cross there's level playing field. And it doesn't matter how much you have or how much you don't have. Those that are poor get riches in Christ and those that are rich in this present world get humbled because their earthly riches get them nothing when it comes to Christ's love. It's only based on what he's done in our place. Does that make sense? There's level playing field at the cross. So, but as people with money in this present day, we need to heed that warning. So what does he say in verse 22? The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried 
And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now look what happens. Both die. Rich or poor, everybody dies. There's no amount of wealth, there's no amount of earthly achievements that can prevent any of us from dying. There's just not. Hebrews 9 says it is appointed for every man once to die and then the judgment, that every single person dies. And we all have different vehicles to get there, whether it's sickness, tragedy, cancer, disease, old age, you name it. But all of us die. And all of it is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. That everything we hate about the world entered in that moment. And we started to decay and experience disease and fatigue and illness and brokenness and sin and tragedy and loss and weeping and all of those things because of sin. But both die. Don't miss that. And there's two types of burials here. We see more of this wordplay. Notice that um, the, the description that he was buried is only given to the rich man. It doesn't say that the poor man was buried because in all intents and purposes in that day, he would not have been. He probably would have been taken to the outskirts of the city and just dumped. But notice that the rich man probably had this lavish funeral. One had this incredible funeral according to the earth and the world standards. One has no mention of a funeral. One was probably honored on earth for his death and one was probably further disgraced on earth when he died. But notice what happens next. One, the one who was disgraced gets transported by the angels and we've got these two destinations that are mentioned. One is Abraham's side and one is Hades. Now, this is where we get to learn some new terms today. If you remember just through the parables, we've learned about the invisible church, the visible church. Now you're going to get to learn this morning about the intermediate state. And this is where these two men have gone. And this is where um, believers and unbelievers who have died are currently at right now. And I'll explain what those are. But one is mentioned as um, Abraham's side. The other is Haiti. Both of these are intermediate states that people are currently experiencing as they wait for Jesus' return. And there's an intermediate state and an eternal state. In Scripture, the intermediate state for those that believed in Jesus um, is called Abraham's side. Um, in the Old Testament specifically, Jesus refers to this in the New Testament as paradise. Um, it is a good thing. It is an incredible thing. It is a heavenly thing. And in the unbelievers, um, in the Old Testament, it's often referred to as Sheol. Um, you see this mentioned in so many books, in the Psalms, in Jonah. Um, in the New Testament, it's mentioned as Hades, with those terms mean the same thing. So what are they? Let me start with those for the believers, Abraham's side. Um, that's what it's referred to. Your translation might say Abraham's bosom, which just means his chest near him, at his side, head on his chest, those kind of things. Um, this is the intermediate state for believers. This is where our loved ones who knew Jesus Christ and put their faith in him on this earth, um, this is where our loved ones currently are. They are what the, at what the Old Testament would call Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom and what Jesus called paradise. If you remember the thief on the cross, he looked at him and said today, in Luke 24, he said today, so the moment you die, you will be with me in paradise. So it's with Jesus. It's in paradise. Where is Jesus? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Um, so I just want to make it clear. It's totally appropriate to say, um, especially for those that you know and love that put their faith in Jesus, that they are in heaven. But I want to make some distinctions that this is not the final state for believers. That there's even, and I think this is beautiful, that those that we know and love who have gone to be with the Lord, they are with him in spirit. Um, their bodies are still in the ground. Uh, when we die, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, that the moment you and I die, John uh, 10 with Lazarus, that you and I, not for a moment, will ever have to taste death if you're in Christ. That he who believes in me will never die. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. 
that the moment those that we love put their faith, who put their faith in Jesus die, their spirit goes to be with the Lord in paradise, at his side. What's so beautiful about this um, truth is that even those that have gone before us who are currently with Jesus have even more to look forward to, that there is more to be enjoyed. They are at perfect peace and rest and joy in the presence of the Lord, but even they have more to look forward to. In fact, Revelation opens with the martyrs crying out, those who have been killed for their faith in Jesus, saying, how long until you come down and avenge us? And Jesus' response is, until those who have been numbered to lose their lives just like you, until the full measure of those whom God has appointed to lose their life for the sake of the gospel, until all of them have died, then the end's gonna come. We also see from Matthew that Jesus says, um, until the gospel goes into all the world to reach all ethnos, all people groups, then the end will come. But even those who have died before us, they have even more to look forward to while their hearts are already at perfect peace and joy and rest in the presence of the Lord. Does that make sense? So those that we know and love who have died, they are in this intermediate state called paradise, called Abraham's side, Abraham being the father of all believers. We'll see here that this rich man appeals to his ethnicity, being a, you know, an ethnic child of Abraham, being an Israelite, but that's not good enough. That God through Christ was redeeming a spiritual people that would be spiritual descendants of Abraham. Paul opens Romans 9 with not all um, Israel is true Israel. Not all, just because of your ethnicity, doesn't make you a child of God. That it's through faith in Christ that makes you a child of God. So that's the paradise, Abraham's side. The second one that's mentioned here is Hades. This is the intermediate state for unbelievers often referred to as Sheol in the Old Testament. And in Scripture, and I want to be clear, there, there's some that debate whether Hades is kind of the catch-all term for both intermediate states, and there's a good one, and there's a bad one. Um, I tend to lean towards Hades, especially in light of the text, is almost always, I think 10 times out of 10 that Hades is mentioned in the New Testament, it's never referring to an end destination for believers. It's always referring to a destination for unbelievers. Um, this is not referring to the term Gehenna that we translate to be hell. That happens later. Gehenna refers to this eternal punishment, the lake of fire. Um, no one is in Gehenna today. That's going to happen later. Those that have died before us and did not put their faith in Jesus, they are in this place called Hades or Sheol. And it is a place of anguish, as we'll see in the parable. It is a place of conscious torment. But just like there's a greater joy coming for the believers that have died, the fear and then the warning of this text is there's a greater punishment for those who have not put their faith in Jesus coming. There's an eternal state for both of these. And here's what we believe. That it won't be until Jesus Christ returns that everyone is raised, believer and unbeliever, and everyone will be given a resurrection body, believer and unbeliever. The believers will be given a resurrection body to endure eternal life, and unbelievers will be given a resurrection body to endure eternal punishment. And we see this happen. Um, Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 15 was the church at Corinth was teaching that there was, or not the church in Corinth, um, Judaizers and others were teaching the church in Corinth that there was no resurrection. So Paul's, this whole chapter is about the fact that we will rise because Jesus rose. And he says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, so the very end, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. We need an imperishable body. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass 
the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That it is not until Jesus Christ returns fully and finally that everyone, those that have gone before us who are in the presence of the Lord, those who are in Hades, those who are alive, everybody will be caught up, everyone will be given resurrection bodies, and everyone will have to experience the great white throne judgment that's described in Revelation. Believers to inherit eternal life, unbelievers to inherit and experience eternal punishment. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but there's, there's a misconception that it's Satan who is tormenting and tempting people in hell for all eternity. And that's not biblical. That would be Satan's heaven. If Satan got to tempt and torment people for all eternity, he would thoroughly enjoy that. But scripture attests to the fact that Satan is a recipient of torment, just as much as the unbeliever. He says this, Paul, uh, not Paul, John writes this in Revelation 20. He says, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is at the very end. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. So this is all the dead given resurrection bodies stand before the Lord and the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And here's where we see Hades being opened and those who have gone before us and Abraham's side, those who have gone before us being opened and all of us being united together in front of the Lord where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But by then for the unbeliever, it will be too late. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see how scripture puts all of this together? That those who have died are in this intermediate state. Those who believed in Jesus in paradise, those who did not in Hades, and one day those who are alive, those who have gone before, will all be caught up, will be given resurrection bodies, we will all stand before the Lord one day, and be judged by whether our names are written in the book, whether we knew Jesus or not, whether we trusted in Jesus in um, his perfect righteousness, his perfect life, his innocent death in our place to attain the righteousness we could never attain and to take the wrath of God that we should have taken because of our sin. And the fact that he rose from the dead, that all of us will face the Lord one day so that those who've gone before us have even more to look forward to, a resurrection body, being in the new heaven and new earth with all those that have gone before them and those who have not put their faith in Jesus have even more punishment to experience. You see that? This is what's going on here. Notice, this isn't the point of the text so we won't spend a lot of time on it, there is no mention of purgatory here. There is no mention of this intermediate state where you and I are purged from our sin, where we have to work it off where we have to spend some time there to make do and pay for our sin, where people can give alms or pray for us and then we eventually go to heaven. The Bible never mentions any of that and I would even argue that flies directly in the face of the gospel. You and I cannot pay for our sin and this intermediate state where you and I pay for our sin is directly against the gospel. Either Jesus paid for our sin or he did not. The gospel is not a spiritual alley-oop where Jesus takes it most of the way and then you and I have to kick in a little bit. We don't sing that song. Jesus paid for most of it. Now you got to kick in a little bit. We don't sing that. He either paid for all of it or he paid for none of it. This idea that you go to a purgatory and pay for your sins is not biblical at all. There's no reincarnation mention. There's no do-overs. That you and I, when our life on this earth is over, that's it. There is, and heed the warning here, there is mercy available now. God's mercy is readily available. But there will be a day where his mercy is not available anymore. Where believers who put their faith in Jesus will eternally experience his mercy. But it is currently available to anyone who might receive it and put their faith in Jesus. 
But there's a warning here that there's a day coming where it will not be. So, verse 24, he called out. So this is the rich man. He calls out Father Abraham, and he calls him Father here, meaning that he was an Israelite. This is how we know that this person was a Jew. He says this, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. So the word there, he called out, also means to cry out. And he says, Father Abraham. Now, and this is where I'll show my hands here. This is where I think this is a parable. Um, Because there's not really any indication in Scripture other than this verse that souls in heaven can communicate with people in Hades and those kind of things. Um, There's this chasm mentioned in that um, Abraham... um, or that Lazarus and the rich man can kind of see one another, or the rich man in Hades can see across the chasm and see Lazarus in paradise and those kind of things. Um, This is where I think this gets into more of the parabolic language um, because I don't necessarily believe that that's a reality uh, in the intermediate state that they can see one another across the chasm. Could it be? In light of this text, it very well could be. Um, but there's not a lot of supporting text um, to, to validate that. So I just want to kind of give you that and let you consider it and ponder it. Um, but um, are people recognizable in the afterlife? I would say so. Um, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, who had never met Moses or Elijah, goes, oh, that's Moses and Elijah next to Jesus, right? So I don't know. There's, there's some sort of knowledge. Maybe Jesus told him and it's just not recorded in the text, Um, But Peter seems to identify them pretty easily. So um, can you argue that we'll notice one another and recognize one another in the afterlife? I think you can, Um, but also not part of the text or not the point of the text. Um, But notice this. The rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. The rich man in the afterlife is still asking for Lazarus to serve him. Hey, Abraham, can you send Lazarus to come bring me some water? Notice this. Even in the afterlife, he's still asking Lazarus to serve him. His eternal circumstances have changed, but his attitude still has not. He still hasn't repented. He doesn't say, have mercy on me and let me um, put my faith in Jesus. He just says, hey, send me some water. He still doesn't want Jesus, right? He still just wants to save his butt and not save his soul. Hey, get Lazarus to send me some water. And notice he doesn't say, have mercy on me and let me out. He wanted some water, right? Tyler said it this week. He wanted a drip of water, but he didn't want the living water still. In the afterlife, still doesn't see that Jesus Christ is all that he needs. Hey, just send me some water. And notice he says, let him dip his finger and bring me a drip of water, uh, why doesn't he just ask for a cup, right? Um, this is hyperbolic language to communicate that, that this torment, this anguish, is so bad that even a drop of water might alleviate some of the suffering. So it, it, it's meant to, to communicate this idea um, that the tiniest bit of water would bring some relief, that this anguish and this pain is going to be so bad. The irony of all this is that the very one who is asking for mercy is the very one who failed to show mercy to the man who was at his gate every day during his life on this earth. And now he's asking for mercy. He did not show mercy on this earth, and now he's begging for it. And I would argue that those who have received the mercy of God extend mercy. This man failed to obey the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And why did he do that? Because he never believed the first commandment. He never loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because he didn't believe the first commandment and didn't obey the first commandment, because he didn't love the Lord, because he didn't experience his mercy, he never obeyed the second commandment, which was to show mercy and love your neighbor. And now it's too late and he's begging for mercy. Does loving others save you? No, it doesn't. Your faith in Jesus saves you. But it shows, loving others shows that you've been loved by the one who has saved you. Showing mercy to others shows that you've received God's mercy. Does that make sense? What we do in this life, good or bad, 
does not save us. It's only faith in Jesus that saves us. But what we do in this life shows whether or not we've been saved, whether or not our hearts have been transformed, whether or not we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, whether or not we've received mercy from a God who owes us nothing by putting our faith in him. John Calvin says, faith alone saves. It's only by faith that we're saved. But faith that saves is never alone. Faith apart from works is dead. And that the way we live our lives on this earth and the way we show mercy to one another ultimately shows whether or not we've received the mercy of the Lord. Abraham says in verse 25, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. Now the fact that he calls him child was just like we've mentioned, refers to him being a descendant of Abraham ethnically. Um, And notice he says this, you've received in your lifetime your good things, Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And there is a blessing here and a hope here for everyone in this room that if you're in Christ, regardless of what pain, what suffering, what cancer, what sickness, what trial, what tragedy you walk through in this life, you will receive comfort for every single bit of it. And the one who will comfort you will be God himself. And for every amount of pain and loss and sadness and suffering that you and I go to or go through in this life, when we meet Jesus, we will be comforted for every single bit of it. And we will be comforted by him and we will be comforted eternally by him. It's all going to be worth it one day. Persevere. Put your hope firmly in Jesus Christ and what he's done. There is comfort coming. He comforts us now in the gospel and he will comfort you physically for all eternity. For all of the loss and all of the pain and all of the sadness, all of the sickness, all of the miscarriages, everything that you've been through. There is comfort in Christ. And we see this man, Lazarus, who had nothing on this earth. No house to his name, no money to his name, sores, tragedy, loss, a life full of begging gets eternally comforted by God himself. The one who never received comfort on this earth is now comforted for all eternity. And the one who lived for his own comfort on this earth will never experience it again. And we see the rich man in Hades. And it has no exit. Verse 26, and besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And notice this, more play on words here. On earth, these two men were separated by a gate, just a man-made human gate. But in eternity, these two men are separated by a great chasm. And the Greek word there, it has been fixed, is in the perfect tense, meaning that it's been there in the past, it's a completed action in the past, and it has ongoing effects. Um, But it's also in the passive, and theologians call this a divine passive, meaning that it has been fixed, that it didn't fix itself, that someone fixed it, and the one who fixed it is divine, that God is the one who fixed that chasm there. He's planned it, he's put it there, and no one can remove it. It's there, no one can cross from there to paradise. Once we die, there is no pleading with those in the afterlife. There's no pleading and getting an answer. That's it. Once we're done, our time is up. Meaning that now is the time to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. Now is the time to put your faith in Christ if you've never done it before. Today is the day of salvation. That once we meet him, our time is up. There is no bartering or begging in the afterlife. Verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Once again, he doesn't say, okay, if you can't save me, go to my father's house, I've got brothers, and preach the gospel to them. What does he say? Just go and warn them not to come here, right? He still doesn't see Jesus as the living water. He still doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah, He just says, hey, go and warn them not to experience the same circumstances that I have. 
And notice he doesn't even say, go and tell the world about this Jesus. He just says, go to my brothers, right? Still just concerned about his own circumstances, his own family, his own stuff. Still not concerned with the Lazaruses of the world, the least of these of the world. He's not saying, go and preach this gospel to everyone. He just says, hey, go and tell my brothers and my father not to end up here. Still doesn't get it. And what is Abraham's response? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have Moses and the prophets. Hey, send Lazarus, you, Abraham, somebody go and tell my family. And verse 29 and verse 31 are the most important verses in this whole paragraph. What does he say? They have Moses and the prophets. Look at the sufficiency of scripture here. They already have all they need to save them. And where is it found? Right here. And notice that Abraham even argues all of it's found in the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is sufficient to save. It's sufficient enough to teach us about our sin, our wretchedness, our wrath that we deserve, a substitute, a sacrifice, a Messiah who would one day come and save us and take our place. That all of it's even found in the Old Testament. It's there. The Old Testament is sufficient to save by faith in God providing a Messiah. And we'll see even more in verse 31. And he says this, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Essentially, hey, if they see a sign, if they see a dead man walking, if they see someone who was dead and is now alive telling them to believe, they will be convinced. And it's tempting to kind of condemn the rich man here, but you and I, especially me, we do the same thing, don't we? God, if you just give me a sign, then I'll obey. God, if you just give them a sign, then they'll trust in you. God, if you just write it in the stars and tell me what I need to do next, then I'll take a step forward, right? God, I know your word says I need to do this. It says I need to honor you and love my neighbor and all those things, but if you just write it out plainly for me and send me a sign, then I'll trust in what you've said. We do the same thing. If God will just give me a sign, then I'll believe. God, heal this person, and then they'll obey you. And we don't trust the sufficiency of Scripture as we should. We just don't. One commentator wrote that this man's request to send a dead man implies that he also thinks that he deserved a special sign. And let me just say this, if you're waiting for a sign this morning, heed this warning, you've received a sign. You have the word of Christ, which is a miracle. You have the work of Christ, which is a miracle. Do not die waiting for another sign. Don't do it. Abraham says, you have the signs. What does he say in verse 31? He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Dang. They had the Old Testament. What do we have? We don't just have the Old Testament. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will be even more condemned for not believing. He says this scripture is sufficient. And Jesus is even tipping his hand here that, hey, I'm going to die. And if they don't see me in this word, if they don't think that this is sufficient to save them, what God has revealed in his word, then even someone coming back from the dead won't convince them. And it doesn't, does it? Scribes and the Pharisees, what do they do? They just keep on killing. His disciples, they killed him. They start killing his followers. Jesus resurrects another Lazarus from the dead. And what happens? Scripture says from that point on, they plotted to kill him. It didn't soften their hearts. This sign, this miracle didn't soften their hearts. It just hardened it even more to the point where they wanted to kill him. And heed the warning this morning. He says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And church, he has risen from the dead. The Old Testament testifies it. The New Testament it reveals it and explains it. That Jesus Christ was a real person. He lived a perfect life. And he died on a cross for sinners. And by faith in him, you can have life and life more abundant. You can experience eternal life. And what's so fascinating about this as we wrap up is 
Um, the name Lazarus, and like I said, I tend to think this is a parable. Um, the name Lazarus is from the Hebrew uh, name Eleazar, um, which actually means the one whom God has helped. And that's the gospel, is that Lazarus did not attain this based on anything that he did. The only way you and I can be saved and experience paradise and one day the new heaven and the new earth when the intermediate state is over and we all meet Jesus, the only way we can experience that is if God does it for us. And he has done it through Jesus Christ. And what's so fascinating about this parable as you read through it, Lazarus is the passive agent. What I mean by that is the rich man does all the talking, he does all the questioning, he does all the acting. We don't have a single quote from Lazarus. We don't have a single you know, action from Lazarus. He's just there. And that's the gospel. As you can't talk your way into it, you can't earn enough money to receive it, you can't do enough just like the rich man, you can never do a thing to inherit eternal life. The only way you can inherit it is just like Lazarus if you receive it by faith. Jesus Christ has done it. He has earned it. He has finished the work. He has attained salvation in our place. He's met God's standard. He has loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has never sinned once in thought or in deed. And then he went to the cross for all the ways that you and I failed to meet God's standard. He lived the life we couldn't live and he took on the wrath of God that you and I deserve. He's won the victory. And we can't earn it. We can't talk our way into it. The only way you can experience this is if you receive it just like Lazarus. The one who seemed cursed on the earth had his curse taken by Jesus on the cross. And the one who seemed blessed on the earth bore his own curse for all eternity. And the gospel is this, that Jesus is the far richer man who though he was rich made himself poor that by believing in him, you and I might be made rich. And Jesus just didn't give us the scraps from the table. He seated us at the table with the Father. That you and I, if you put your faith in Jesus, you aren't just given the scraps. You are co-heirs with Christ. You are sons and daughters of the living God, and you get a seat at the table. So what's our response this morning? For the unbeliever, it's pretty clear. Hear the gospel and believe. You don't need a sign you don't need anyone to come back from the dead. The God of the universe came down and lived the life you could never live and died the death that you deserve and rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. It is in this book. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, you need to know that all of us are going to spend eternity somewhere. All of us are gonna be resurrected. All of us are gonna be given eternal bodies and all of us are gonna face Jesus Christ one day. And the only way that you and I can experience eternal life is not by earning it, not by working for it, not by making money. It's by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. For the believer, I want to read to us this warning in Hebrews 10 as we close. It says this, um, starting in verse 26. Listen to this. Believers in the room, this is for myself, um, but this is a warning we all need to hear. He says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I want to issue that warning. I had to ponder over this and really ask some hard questions this week for myself. But for those of us in here who claim to know Jesus, heed this warning. That if we tell people we know Jesus, that if we claim to know Jesus, but we go on completely um, and deliberately sinning, yeah, I, I put my faith in Jesus, I raise my hand one day in a service, and I keep going to build my kingdom and just do what I want and keep on sinning and plan to sin and all those things and just live an unrepentant life, then the writer of Hebrews says that you have profaned the grace and the blood of Christ, and there is no mercy for us. Heed that warning. Ask ourselves these questions this morning. Do I truly have a repentant heart that knows that it was my sin that put him there, and it was his blood that was shed instead of mine? And the beauty of this warning is that there's, there's grace and mercy available with repentance. 
that those eyes that see the mercy of God the greatest are those who are weeping with repentance. It's available to you. And for the rest of us, there's a warning we need to heed, but then there's a stewardship that we need to obey and to use. That there is a world around us. There's people in my family, there's people in your family, people in this community, people in our schools that do not know Jesus Christ. They don't. And our time is running short. And what's gonna matter in this life is not your earthly kingdom, not what you did, not your accolades, not those things, but how you stewarded this gospel message. That's the only thing that's gonna stand, what you did for eternity. Every earthly kingdom, every earthly accolade will fade. The only thing that will last for all eternity is what you and I have done with the gospel message, that we've received it and how we stewarded it to share with others. And it is available to all. Paul says in Romans 10, the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Everyone who believes will not be put to shame for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on them whom they not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? In verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But there's a, thousands of people in this community that do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've never put their faith in it. And they will not believe it unless they hear it. And they will not hear it unless someone preaches to them. And we will not preach to them unless we get moving and share it with those around us. So unbeliever, put your faith in Jesus this morning if you feel like the Spirit is calling you. Believer, heed this warning. Do you truly see Jesus as your righteousness and your holiness and your substitute? And what are we doing to share the gospel with those around us? Everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. And we're going to respond this morning um, a little differently. Um, in light of these realities, some of you have family members and friends that don't know the gospel. Uh, we'd love to pray with you for those people. Um, some of you might need to come down and put your faith in the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus and what he's done. Um, we're not going to sing this morning. Um, in fact, how we're going to respond is I'm going to just give you a minute to reflect on what we've heard. And then uh, we're going to dismiss. I'm going to pray us out. We're going to dismiss. And we're going to have myself, um, Chris, some elders, uh, some of our staff down here. And as people leave, that's totally fine. If you need prayer, um, if you need to put your faith in Jesus, if you want us to pray with you about someone in your family or a friend or a coworker that doesn't know Jesus, um, if you're suffering and you need prayer for perseverance, knowing that there's comfort down the road, and you need us to just come around you and pray that God would give you grace and perseverance and endurance. Um, our team's just here to serve you. If you want to put your faith in Jesus, you want to pray for someone who doesn't know him, or if you want to pray for endurance and perseverance, um, as we dismiss, all you got to do is just come down front. Uh, we'll get our guest services folks to close the doors here in a little bit um, after the majority of the people leave, but we just want to make ourselves available to pray with you. Um, these are some hard truths and some hard realities. So just take a minute and reflect give you about 30 seconds, and then um, I'm going to pray for us. And if you need prayer, our team's going to be available. I'll dismiss us, and you can come down front, and uh, we'd love to pray with you. But just take a minute and reflect on these truths. Um, pray for the lost. Praise God for what he's done in your own heart. Um, and think about who God's put in your path um, to share the gospel with.
Father, these are eternal truths. These are hard truths. These are weighty truths. But God, we're grateful that you are a merciful and gracious God, that you have provided, purchased by your blood, you have purchased eternal life for all who might believe. Anyone in here this morning who might put their faith in you, and who you are, your perfect life, your criminal's death, the resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. So God, I pray for all of us, um, God, that we would be burdened by these truths. Father, that you have saved us and redeemed us for a purpose. God, you've reconciled us to yourself. And as 1 Corinthians says, you've given us a ministry of reconciliation to be used by you, to be the vessels by which this gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And God, before it goes to the ends of the earth, let it start in our homes. God, I pray that parents would heed this message and teach the gospel to their children regularly. God, I pray for our teens, that we would have parents and adults who would come alongside of them and teach the gospel to them. God, before we expect it to go to the ends of the earth, God, let it start with us. Let it start in our our homes, our schools, our communities. God, help us to steward this message faithfully. Father, if there's anyone in here, God, I just pray against the stigma that people that come down front um, are walking in sin or are doing something terrible. God, um, we have, all of us, have lost friends and family members who don't know you that we need to pray for. God, that you might open their eyes. Give them understanding to hear your word. God, for those who need to put their faith in Jesus, I pray that you give them boldness. God, help us to be faithful with this message in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.